Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. My guest today is Cardinal Michael Cherney, who leads the Vatican's Migrants and Refugees section. A Canadian Jesuit, Cardinal Cherney was stunned to hear last fall that Pope Francis was naming him a cardinal, because he wasn't even a bishop at the time. That surprising decision by the Holy Father was yet another example of how migrants have been so close to Pope Francis's heart throughout his papacy. Cardinal Cherney and I discussed that day he heard the big news, and also the impact of the pandemic on migrants around the world, plus what message he wanted to share with the 20 Jesuits he ordained in Rome this summer. Cardinal Cherney is an incisive thinker and a man of deep faith. Two traits, I think, really come through in our conversation. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Cardinal Michael Cherney, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk today. How are you doing? Very well. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I look forward to your questions. So I wanted to start by, again, asking a little bit about uh, your, your work, especially kind of in these unprecedented times. So what does the, the work of the Undersecretary uh, for the Vatican's Migrant and Refugee Section, what is your day-to-day work like? Well, the, the day-to-day work uh, is, um, in one sense, quite simple. Uh, we, are, we exist uh, to help uh, the Holy Father in his mission uh, and that includes, of course, his mission in response to migrants, refugees, and other vulnerable people on the move. Uh, and the way in which we can most help him is, in fact, by helping and accompanying, assisting the bishops, the bishops' conferences, the diocesan offices for migrants, or uh, whatever the title might be, and uh, the all the church's efforts uh, to respond to uh these vulnerable people on the move. And uh, so the work uh, depends to a large extent on what is happening in the different uh, dioceses and uh, conferences around the world. So it's a big church. There's a lot happening. When you take that view of things that are, are going on, are there similarities that you see? Are the realities obviously are, are different, but just what is your experience kind of looking at that, uh, at the status of uh, migrants and refugees when you take that global vision? Well, you've, you've put it well already, um, namely that uh, on the one hand, there are similarities, uh, people who are fleeing for their lives, uh, people who are... Um, forced to flee by circumstances beyond their control and contrary to their wishes, uh, people who are rendered vulnerable by uh, uh, whether it's violence or uh, climate change or uh, corruption or uh, human rights violations. Uh, this uh, very um, dramatic uh, human experience is also very typical. Um, we human beings have been moving and fleeing since the beginning of time. We wouldn't be the human family we are today if it hadn't been for uh, movement and flight. Um, some of it was more voluntary, some of it was more coerced. So there's a really a very important common denominator. On the other hand, we cannot be of support and service to a local church 
if we're not taking the local situation, the local circumstances very much into account. And so the work, as you yourself suggested, has this universality to it, and at the same time, a, uh, uh, an important particularity, a pertin uh, contingency, which uh, our uh, different regional coordinators are sensitive to, and that's how our uh, mission to a company uh, gets expressed uh, in the different parts of the world. I'm wondering how the pandemic has affected people on the move around the world, as you've heard from from partners, uh, obviously has changed a lot. I read it in a piece you wrote for uh, the Catholic or an interview you did for the Catholic news agency. The idea sort of that we see how migrant workers especially are kind of like legs to a table who have kind of supported our way of life. And maybe those legs kind of have been removed and we're kind of forced to, to reckon with that for people who are often kind of on the margins or um, not recognized by us. For, what, what have you seen in terms of the effect of the pandemic on uh, migrants and refugees? I think you can start with the effect that uh, many of us have experienced, even if we're not uh, migrants or refugees, and that is uh, that, we, that we found ourselves stuck. We were locked down. We were uh, not free to move where we wanted to and not free to stay where we, necessarily where we wanted to. And in fact, many people going about their ordinary lives found themselves stuck somewhere other than their home or their home area and have spent weeks or even months um, in a kind of temporary exile. So uh, there's a, a way in which we have um, maybe many people, many more people have uh, actually shared a bit in what it's like to be a migrant and a refugee. On the other hand, uh, the important thing for migrants and refugees is to get to where they uh, want to go or where they can be. This is, uh, this is what they're seeking because to be somewhere safe, to be somewhere where they can settle and uh, resume their lives or start their lives again, uh, this, this is what they desire. They don't, obviously, nobody wants to be a migrant or a refugee as such. And uh, what did COVID do but, but stop them in their tracks? So uh, there's been a very remarkable uh, reduction in the movement of people. There's been a, a closing of borders. There, uh, on the other hand, and I know you'll ask me later about signs of hope. Uh, on the other hand, for example, there are Im important uh, instances where detention centers were emptied because it wasn't safe to keep the people in detention. There's a good example of where COVID uh, somehow uh, freed us up to do what, what what in fact makes more sense, which is that people should be uh, don't have to be detained just because they have a, a migratory situation. So uh, I would say that COVID um, uh, frustrated uh, the movement of peoples. It um, exacerbated the causes. That there, there are more people, in a sense, who feel impelled to move now than than six months ago, because of uh, that absolutely unimaginable uh, job losses that, that have taken place. And as you were suggesting with uh, my example of the uh, legs of the table, uh, people in many societies at many different types of situations um, have uh, suddenly stopped doing what they were quietly or invisibly doing uh, for the rest of society. And suddenly we discover that, that uh, the way we live depends on them uh, even though they have been shabbily treated, even though they have little or no rights, uh, even though they have no appeal, 
But now with our uh, economies and regu regular rhythms disrupted, these people have been thrown out of work, uh, which then means many of them also have been thrown out of their homes or their, their wherever they were living. Uh, they no longer have uh, even minimal access to food, much less health care or education. So uh, difficult uh, situations that people were managing have now become unlivable or impossible. That's And that's a sad thing. And uh, that's something which uh, governments have not been uh, uh, vigorous enough and generous enough and uh, creative enough to meet those many, many needs. Pope Francis's emphasis on welcoming migrants obviously goes back to the beginning of his pontificate and before, not just something in the past handful of months. I'm curious when you have conversations with him about migration, what are things that he's interested in learning about? What are messages he wants to communicate to you or to share with people who you work with? Kind of where are his head and heart these days in terms of um, supporting migrants? I would say that his head and heart are where they've always been. I don't think COVID has changed that. Uh, he believes, and our experience proves him right, that by and large, we are, uh, as societies, we are capable of managing uh, the movement of peoples. It's not, a, uh, it's not an impossible challenge. And uh, one of the processes that he supported and uh, whose outcome we, we're happy of are, are the processes which led to the new global compacts on refugees and on safe and orderly migration. So uh, we are capable of agreeing on what's needed for the uh, more uh, more humane and more effective and and more just uh, governance of um, migratory flows and uh, refugee uh, situations. We we are capable of that, and so his concern, you might say, is not about that because that is basically uh, a, a given, or should be a given. Uh, what he's most concerned about are those uh, situations and places where all uh, uh, all the the the, uh, con the restraints or all the uh, uh, conditions have become impossible, and uh, where uh, people are really uh, suffering beyond beyond all measure, and. Uh, these are the places that he brings up often at uh, the Angelus to and invites us all to pray for those situations. They are the situations in which he appeals to uh, world leaders uh, to um, make the, the needed effort to resolve the whatever the conflict is that's causing this and appealing to the populations to set aside the differences that are causing the conflicts and to uh, reconcile enough to, to be able to live together or often is the case to live together again, because they, these are populations that used to uh, coexist peacefully. So uh, you might say the, the concern, the general concern is there and hasn't uh, changed during COVID, but he has paid special attention to places where he knows and where we all know through the media that uh, there is enormous suffering. Uh, the Holy Father just celebrated a mass this month for the seventh anniversary of his visit to Lampedusa, one of uh, his very early visits in his pontificate when he went to that, you know, that place where so many migrants arrive. Reflecting on that trip, again, seven years ago now, but clearly the symbolic power of that uh, remains. Uh, any takeaways from that, that mass or uh, from, you know, the kind of lingering power of that image? 
I mean, the, the the fact that Lampedusa has become an anniversary is, in a sense, a way of underlining the, the very questions that you've been asking, that these are enduring questions, enduring situations, and uh, they require... Um, they require more attention, um, more creativity, more resources than um, most societies are dedicating to them. And uh, in particular, uh, in Lampedusa, there is the uh, the dramatic uh, memory, ongoing memory of uh, remembering those who lose their lives uh, trying to cross the Mediterranean and who uh, even to this day uh, continue to suffer uh, terrible injustice, um, violation of the very basic right we have uh, declared uh, universally not to be sent back to places of danger, and um, where the very drama that they're living uh, demonstrates so uh, palpably, so uh, tangibly, that um, it's uh, that, that they're ready to give and risk everything in order to have a better, a second chance, to have a better chance at life which um, I find very touching too, because I have the feeling that this is something with which all of us can identify. That when for the sake, for one's own sake, but especially for the sake of one's children, uh, it has come to the point where, where it's worth sacrificing everything, um, that has got to appeal to your, uh, uh, to your humanity and to your sensitivity, and you cannot, you cannot uh, turn your back or close a blind eye. That experience is connected to your own family, part of your story, born in Czechoslovakia and then moving to Canada as a very young child. When you work with migrants in this work, does your own family's story affect the way you approach that work? I wouldn't say it affects it, but I have been surprised in the uh, uh, four years now that I've been working in the migrants' refugee section. I, I, I was surprised as this work uh, unfolded. Uh, how my um, experience that I was having uh, recalled that uh, earlier family history about which I, let's say I hadn't been paying so much attention to it or it hadn't been very much vivid in my mind. And what struck me was that that it um, these memories come back not because I read some statistics or, or some analysis, but when uh, somebody is describing how they fled or why they fled or what happened to them when they fled, then, then I remember. So it's not. A rem I'm not remembering the ideas, but nearly the experience, or at least the the lived, uh, the living memory of it in our in our family life. And as I mentioned in some published interviews, this was not something about which we talked very much. It wasn't a lively topic of conversation as the years went by in Canada. So, uh, so these are early memories, and in some ways, special memories that key that are that now come back when I'm um, working with people who are going through some of the things that we went through too. Most of our listeners are uh, people of faith, really interested in, in supporting this important work uh, here in the United States and Canada. Are there any things that you suggest for, for Catholics that, that they can do to kind of support this work from wherever we are living here? One of the striking things that the Holy Father has said uh, repeatedly uh, and he says it about other issues too, but I, I have a feeling that this, there's a special there's a special urgency when he uh, says it about the migrants, refugees, uh, displaced people, and victims of human trafficking. These are the people with whom we work, and that is, uh, he says that each and every one of us can do something. Now, this is uh, you could say, well, uh, yes, uh, one is always told that. 
but I have the feeling that there's a special meaning to it here. Uh, and this maybe that this, uh, this drama or this uh, dynamic of human mobility and especially flight from, uh, from vulnerability and from hopelessness, uh, it touches us very deeply. And I think he uh, is helping to orient us to this uh, recognition that we are all, uh, each of, not all, but each of us, is somehow personally touched by or connected with. And therefore, he says, with great simplicity and great insistence, each of us can do something. Whereas I have the feeling that with some of the other big issues, sometimes we're blocked precisely by the feeling that, well, yes, I know it's a big problem, but what can I do? And nobody comes along to tell me what I can do. So then I continue feeling, well, it's a big issue, but it, it's really not my issue. But he, uh, it's, it's as if he won't let us off the hook on this one. That every one of us can do something. And I have the feeling that, you know, that uh, the discovery of what one can do is just waiting the willingness to, to say, yeah, now what can I do? And uh, thankfully, so many parishes... Uh, so many uh, local Catholic charities, uh, so many religious congregations uh, in the United States and around the world, in fact, are doing things. And it's no more difficult than passing by, dropping in and saying, uh, I really uh, don't understand what you do or how you do it, but if there's anything I could do to help, here I am. And um, one of the benefits we've experienced in Canada with the uh, community sponsorship program is that by parishes sponsoring refugee families, in fact, everyone discovered that, yes, they could do something. It might not have been uh, seemed like a lot, but uh, somebody discovered that they could teach language. Somebody else discovered they could take uh, the people shopping. Somebody else discovered he had an extra mattress that they could lend and so on. And, and the, the, these practical gestures of, of um, charity and fraternity, if you want to call them that, um, open the doors to that human encounter that the Holy Father, I know, feels is at the heart of all this. That, that uh, from calling somebody a, a migrant, a refugee, a victim of human trafficking, you realize that, no, this is uh, so-and-so with a name, a person, a smile, a tear, and uh, the possibility of, of life together. And that's, that's how it really is meant to work. That is the kingdom happening among us. And this is what the Holy Father is encouraging us to do. And he would say it's a pity if uh, people don't uh, uh, take advantage of this, if they don't reach out uh, to those who need a welcoming hand. I hear echoes in your reflection of Pope Francis's uh, culture of encounter that he talks about. And also the kind of within that, though, the idea of the throwaway culture, that there are people who are cast aside. And we know here in, in our country and in Canada some, but not as maybe virulently as the United States, there is a, a, a current of nativism or uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, even within the church. Or, so it sounds like maybe in some ways facing that, if there are chances to meet people and to learn their stories, that can help kind of break down some of those obstacles. Are there any other things you think that are kind of important for us uh, in the, the church to offer to, to kind of help work against that tide? I mean, it's uh, as simple and as complete as saying, well, live your faith. In other words, uh, you, you, you can't say uh, our father and then say, but of course, that doesn't include the people that I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, you can't um, 
love your neighbor and say, well, yes, there's, here's, this is my group of neighbors, uh, but I don't, uh, I don't need any more neighbors. That our faith doesn't work like that. And so, um, and uh, I think in, in North America, we could perhaps meditate on the irony that what you, of what the word you used, you called it nativism. Um, there, there are few, uh, proportionately few of us who uh, can use that uh, label. And I suspect that they're not the ones who are saying, well, we're, we're the natives. So, so I think that's, uh, that, that should call, a, call, our, uh, call our attention too. that uh, um, finally, none of us is native on this earth. We're visitors. We're here to, to do the best we can for the while we have. But uh, none of us was, was permanently here and none of us will be permanently here. So we're all... Uh, in that sense, on the move. And um, the sooner we move together, uh, the, the better it'll be not only for ourselves, but also for our common home. And this is a very important question, which you didn't ask me, but now you'll get the answer anyway. And that is that uh, there is a great connection between the mission and ministry of the church to vulnerable people on the move and our care for the common home. Our common home will not be safe, will not be secure, will not be a real home to us uh, if uh, we uh, exclude people. Uh, if people are uh, meant to live or forced to live in a way that is uh, uh, inferior to the dignity of a brother or sister living in a common home. And there's only one common home. So either we're going to make, a, a make, make it together in this common home or we're not going to make it at all. And uh, some, of, uh, some of our big mistakes have to do with the uh, vulnerable people who are part of our common home. And uh, some of our other big mistakes are, have to do with how we treat the common home itself. And uh, in fact, in our uh, section, we're uh, reflecting right now on the connection, which is what we call climate displaced or the uh, people uh, who are forced to flee because of the climate crisis. And unfortunately, this is uh, going to be an expanding or growing problem too until we uh, get it together on the, on the climate and uh, environmental side as well. So there you are, you have all the connections. And I find that to be such a, a crucial contribution the church has to make to the conversation about climate change and protecting the environment. And Pope Francis does this in Laudato Si and in the Carita Amazonia document about kind of integral ecology, that we can't talk about these things in vacuum, that they're all connected. And we see, again, seeing now there's just a large feature in the New York Times about the you know, climate refugees. Like this is a reality for, for so many people uh, that when we are seeing the planet warm up, that's not just about animals, though it is. It's also about human beings and whose lives are like changed maybe for generations. Uh, so thank you for highlighting the, those connections are important for us. Um, you mentioned kind of our, our call to do what we can while we're here with that time, which brings me to asking about uh, an ordination you recently uh, presided at. Uh, two Jesuit priests and 18 Jesuit deacons from all over the world were ordained uh, at the the Jesu church in Rome, the, the, one of the Jesuit churches there. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, these, these times when the men being ordained could not be with their families, uh, strange time. What was that experience like presiding over that ordination? Well, you, I have to uh, mention that it was my first, so uh, that, uh, was a, <laughs> that makes it a, a very special experience. And so I can uh, give uh, great credit to the Master of Ceremonies who kept me lined up in the right direction 
most of the time, as far as I know. No, it was it, it was a very moving experience because um, uh, of those of us who are ordained already, I don't, I th I'm sure that every one of us will say that the presence of family and friends uh, was uh, a very important uh, part of our experience. And I'm sure that the young men who uh, were ordained on the 27th of June uh, had been imagining and planning this for years and and could practically foresee how it was going to be with their with their families and and friends and uh, fellow Jesuits from their home province and so when this uh, became impossible it seemed to I felt that the we were in a sense rendered we were impoverished by the by the obstacles that caught COVID um, put in our way. But on the other hand, we were, um, in a sense, forced to raise our eyes uh, higher and to look further and to realize that we were, in fact, uh, celebrating our faith and celebrating the life of the church and the uh, future mission and ministry of uh, these, uh, these men. Uh, it, we, were, we were doing it in a, in a, in a way that, that corresponds to the mission that uh, that uh, highlights the fact that these uh, people these men are are called from within their families within their particular communities but for for mission and ministry wherever and with whomever and uh, wherever the lord will call and that uh, again uh, the lord and and with him the church uh, are not limited to saying well we'll be church here uh, for now no, we will be church everywhere, uh, whenever and forever. And so to be at the service in, of this uh, mission, which is uh, ready to go to the ends of the earth, uh, and that means, as Pope Francis has taught so eloquently and so repeatedly, the ends of the earth, which he uh, renames the peripheries, are, are not, uh, it's not a question of long distance travel. It's a question of, of uh, opening one's heart one, well, before one's heart, to open one's eyes and uh, ears, uh, or to use one's feet to move into the, that part of my neighborhood, even or or my town, or my district or area where uh, the others live, they live, them, the where them live, and realize that them, uh, they and them are my also my brothers and sisters, that uh, they and them uh, want to hear the word of Jesus, experience the touch of Jesus, uh, share in the life of Jesus. And um, that's what ordination really is about. And, and in a sense, it's, I don't want to exaggerate, but it's just, it is not a family affair. It is, not a, a, it is not for me and my family and my friends. It's, it's for, the, for, for God's people. Uh, it's for uh, the men and women uh, of our times and of future times who need to hear the word of God and to feel the uh, Christ's healing touch. And so in our, in this strange way, this somewhat restrained way, and, uh, or if you want lockdown way, I think we were brought to a new level of, of uh, universality. And I think mm -hmm. this is also what the Holy Father communicated and expressed and and practically, I would say, incarnated in the great events of the of the COVID time, and maybe most of all the uh, the uh, prayer, the extraordinary prayer on the twenty seventh of March. 
Mm. A version of your homily from that ordination mass is published, and we'll link to that one line uh, you use that I found really challenging is a to choose the uphill path of the new rather than the downhill path of the safe. Uh, and a great call to those ordained and those of us who are all the baptized, uh, who I think that call to us, uh, as we've been talking about, things that we can do. Uh, not always safe, not always easy, but uh, part of our, our call to discipleship. Um, you mentioned it was your first ordination, and I wanted to, to ask a little bit about uh, how that came to be going back maybe nine or 10 months or so. Uh, you were named a cardinal by Pope Francis. I think it caught a, a lot of folks in the church by surprise because you hadn't been a bishop before that. Uh, so I don't know if you're willing to share a little of the story about how, how you found out that news and what it was like to, to get that phone call. Well, uh, I was... Um... I was in uh, uh, the outskirts of Sao Paulo, so when the Holy Father was uh, making his announcement around uh, noon or here in Rome, it was uh, about six in the morning, I think, in, in Sao Paulo. Uh, anyway, I don't remember the time exactly, but I do know that I, I was uh, just at the very beginning of the day, and uh, the, phone, uh, the phone rang, and it was a friend uh, who works at Vatican Radio, so therefore somebody on top of the news, who phoned me uh, and told me, uh, I actually shouted very excitedly that I should calm down. Uh, since, <laughs> since, <laughs> which was very good advice, although I hadn't had a, I didn't know why I wasn't supposed to be calm. And so that's how it began with, with his invitation to calm down. But what, is, what was really very touch well, besides his friendship in calling me, what was very touching is that, in fact, I was at a meeting of the popular movements uh, of uh, Latin America, a small meeting, a representative meeting, uh, um, popular movements with which, with which I had been uh, associated over the past recent years. And the, the topic of the meeting was preparing for the Synod on the Amazon. And I don't, I can't imagine a better, more apt and more touching place uh, to find myself uh, receiving this news than with, uh, with these people. And we, uh, they, uh, I'm not sure they all knew exactly what a cardinal was, but they somehow picked up the idea that it was a, was a, a, re a good reason to celebrate. And so uh, my first day or first hours as a cardinal were with uh, people I was very happy to be with and who, who in some ways, uh, reflected to me or mirrored to me the uh, the mission that I know the Holy Father was entrusting to me, and for that I'm very grateful. Hmm. Has your life changed in this past year because of that announcement? Uh, all I can say is, of course, <laughs> of course <laughs> it has. <laughs> I, I, it would it would be a sad thing to say, oh no, everything's the same except the color of what I wear. <laughs> 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 yes, of course it changes. <laughs> Any one specific way you think? No, of I can't say. It. Well, there you're right. It's it is a good question. Uh, it's not so much specific. It's I I would say it has to do with with uh, one's sense of of mission, uh, and uh, I I was already here uh, working first at the uh, Council for, Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace, and then. Uh, in the migrants and refugees section, so I was already sharing in a in a very privileged way in the mission and ministry of the Holy Father, the uh, Roman Pontiff, or the. But um, becoming a cardinal is, uh, I guess, is a is uh, I experience it as an as uh, an acceptance or an assumption of the of the uh, burden of the mission of the Church, and that this mission with its uh, 
difficulties and the challenges facing it uh, is not something I can just think about indirectly or from a distance, but something that uh, is is my life now. And uh, as uh, this, there isn't a time limit on this uh, appointment. I suppose this will be my mission and ministry uh, for the rest of my time here on Earth. Well, Your Eminence, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to me today. And thank you for your ongoing ministry and know of our prayers uh, for you back here in, in North America as you uh, continue in this work. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking and God bless you all. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Thank you.